0: Episode 31, Mark Wagler, Reshaping Classrooms with Narrative Pedagogy. Thank you, my dear
1: brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories.
0: Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach.
2: You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing.
1: That's a great question.
2: Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell
1: stories. Know
0: yourself. Follow your passion. And
1: live with grace.
0: Hey, welcome again to the Art of Storytelling with Children. And I am so pleased that you have made it here with us, that you have come around our fire here, that we sit out in the woods around this fire with the stars overhead. Me and, and Mark and our good friend Larry back there in the in the dark and the shadows over there. And we're sitting around the fire here, and we're telling old stories and talking about the way of the world. And I'm glad you've, you've kind of stumbled out of the dark there and found your way through that, that nest and that, that, that sort of dark uh, woods of the Internet. And you've found your way all the way down to our fire. And maybe you'll take a minute from your busy life and distractions and the one-click-away Internet, and you'll just sit down here by the fire and, And maybe you've got something you're doing right now and you can do it, but you'll sit down here with us and and you'll listen to us for a little while because we might perhaps have something worthwhile for you to share with you, you know. And I just want to really appreciate the fact that you've come here, that you've come here out of a desire to learn more about storytelling and how storytelling relates to teaching. I think that's a wonderful thing. Because today on the show I have Mark Wagler on the show here with me And I am really excited about Mark because he seems to have a real idea about where schools could be going. And I find that very exciting. And so let me tell you a little bit about Mark. Mark Wagler grew up in a large Amish Mennonite family in Ohio. He studied cultural history in graduate school at the University of Bern in Switzerland, the U- History of Science and Renaissance Reformation of Wisconsin. As a freelance storyteller and folklorist, Mark conducted long-term educational projects with the Museum of Wisconsin Historical Society, Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction, Wisconsin Public Radio, uh, and the Center for Study of Upper Midwestern Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and directed a two-year-long teaching program in the UN, uh, UW-Madison and the Madison School Districts. On storytelling in the language arts and social studies. He was the first president of the Northland Storytelling Networks and co director of Heads and Tails, an international conference on storytelling and education. Until recently, Mark taught a, a multi age fourth and fifth grade classroom at Randall School in Madison, Wisconsin, and as co founder of the Huron Network. The Huron Institute and the Great Blue, a journal of student inquiry, he helped provide training and organization collaboration among teachers who were emphasizing equity, inquiry, and in local study, and networking in their classrooms. His students regularly observe nature in the outdoor classroom he helped establish at his school and on, and on biweekly morning in the marshes at nearby Lake Wingra. Um, in recent years, his students have taken cultural tours of the country, nearby neighborhoods, and seven uh, communities throughout the Wisconsin area, among communities throughout the Wisconsin area. Um, Students presented the result of these inquiries via student journals and conferences, museum exhibits, and a book, video, and websites, and local and global classroom networks. Having never really talked to Mark about his history or how he's inspired, I look at what he's done, all these different things, and I see someone, right? who has really been influenced by Foxfire and the works of the Foxfire books. I've seen a lot of people try to copy the works of the Foxfire books and not get it. And just looking at this list of things he's accomplished, it's clear to me that Mark Wagler really understands how storytelling can be used to encourage the growth of self-empowerment and the growth growth of, of culture and the passing of knowledge and history from one generation to the next. So let me go on a little bit, just tell a little bit more about him here. Um, he has published articles and book chapters and presented many workshops and keynote addresses based on his teaching, storytelling, and field work. Among numerous academic and teaching awards, he has received a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, a Dorothy Howard Prizer in Folklore Education for the American Folklore Society, and the Presidential Award for Excellence in Teaching Mathematics and Science. Mark is now the Program Manager at the local games lab at the University of Wisconsin, where he helps create augmented reality games about local places, support teachers who use the games in their classrooms, and research student learning. Although place-based games are new media for Mark, the NPC's roles and challenges feel very familiar in Mark. He's still teaching with stories. Um, Mark, thank you for coming on today. Okay.
2: Good to talk with you, Rick.
0: (laughs) I'm really excited. So is what I said true? I mean, were you influenced by the, the Foxfire books?
2: Well... Actually, I began collecting stories before I heard about the Foxfire books. So when I did get to hear about them, I enjoyed it, but I had already gotten started before.
0: Yeah. So what's a story that, um, that has really influenced you in your life or a story you'd like to share with us today?
2: Well, I have two stories. One is a story I've never told before, um, although I've told pieces of it. And uh, I think of it as, as uh, to tell you about my perfect Residency. So when I began first consciously telling storytelling, I thought that it was kind of a hit and run. I go into a classroom, I tell stories, and I leave. I go to a library, I tell stories, and I leave. And so I thought that the ideal thing to be a storyteller would be is the maximum number of places that I could go to and tell stories. Hmm. Well, that happened until I began doing artist-in-residence projects with the Wisconsin Arts Board, Oh, probably around nineteen seventy nine. And um telling stories many times a day, uh, my voice ran out. And so then I began realizing, aha, there must be another way to do this, so I began teaching storytelling and teaching kids how to collect stories. Now the Arts Board had a, a really great program in the early nineteen eighties. Um we did a, had a whole lot of artists in residencies uh, throughout the state and and other educational sites that were hiring the artists and hosting the residency would gather. And uh, at these events, there would be showcases by artists. There would be panel discussions on how to create a residency. And, of course, the artists, we had great times hanging out together. And as we'd talk, you know, we would we we love to tell about our favorite events and, um, uh, you know, a great residency, something that happened. And I noticed that I would become envious when anybody would tell about a long residency. I mean, of course, I loved it if somebody had a great story of something they'd accomplished. but if it was a long time that they were at a school or a community center or at a library, I thought, now, that has got to be the best because it is so deep and it is so profound. It's it's no longer my idea of tell a story and move on to the next town. And... um, so, in fact, one year I got to add my story to this, and I had a year-long residency. I could walk to the Museum of the State Historical Society, where every day I led storytelling tours of the museum and prepared programs, um, workshops for kids and programs for adults. And then, as I was listening to you know artists talking about the ideal residency, the other thing that was ideal is what we used to call the core group, so you would present to many people in a school, but your core group or core groups were the people that you gave the, big, the whole thing to. And uh, so the ideal core group was one. The ideal length of a residency was a year. Well, sometime later in my life, I began to realize that, well, that would be like teaching school. Hmm. You've got one group of kids. You've got them the whole year. And maybe that would work. When I think about that, I realize that my movement from being a freelance storyteller, you know, performing and working you know, in a thousand or more places in the time that I worked, and then going back to teaching, is backwards of what everyone dreams to do. I mean, that the great idea is, I and mean, teachers would say, oh, isn't it great to be a storyteller? Like, I would love to have your job. And for myself... I noticed I was telling stories about community, and I'd, i there was one I remember one year I counted that in the thirty six weeks of the school year, I was on the road for thirty five of those weeks, leaving either Sunday night or very early Monday morning and not come home till late friday night mm. and I find myself crying sometimes i just it hurt not to be at a new place and to tell stories, but it hurt to not have a place where I was deeply connected to. Hmm. So that's the way in which I worked in the opposite direction of where, you know, a lot, I mean, I know lots of great storytellers who started off as classroom teachers, and I followed a different direction.
0: That actually, I mean, let's just sidetrack for a second here, because I know you have a second story in the wind. Yeah. But, but um, is the storytelling lifestyle sustainable? I mean, is it sustainable to go from town to town to school to school? Is it something that, is it a reasonable thing to think that we can do that for 20 years or 10 years or even five years?
2: Well, it can be sustainable in in multiple ways. I mean, one thing is that there are seasons in our lives. Mm. So there are times when, um, you know, we want to be on the road. Um, There's also times when we're younger or times when we don't have young children that we need, we just have to be with. I mean, we can't imagine doing it otherwise. Um, you know, of course, I know storytellers who travel with their mates. Uh, so there's there's a variety of ways of making it sustainable. I think one of the things that if I would have stayed in storytelling, I would have had to have gone the route that, you know, other people did, and that was to um, do much more marketing of myself, charge more money, and be gone less. So I, I was i was kind of a blue-collar storyteller. Mm-hmm. I, 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 <laughs> I worked all the time. And that lifestyle was not sustainable for me. But I do believe that storytelling can be sustainable to somebody who's maybe a little wiser than I was then.
0: Mm. That's good. Let's go on to your second story. Well, the second story,
2: I—it's the second day of school, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, I've told all my kids, I've described to them, this way that we're going to be doing science, and I tell them we're going to be asking our own questions, bring in materials or have materials that I have there in the classroom, set up the experiment, collect data, draw conclusions, and I've explained this, and uh, I give a a deadline for having materials. I said that you know on Friday, that everybody who has their materials can will be able to begin. So Friday comes. It's a few days later, and I ask who you know who has materials, who's has their question, who's ready to set up their science experiment. And of course, before then, I had conferenced with kids. I mean, anybody who had signed up to talk with me, I had gone over with them. I'd helped them. Think through. I'd given them ideas. Um, they were not expected to do this entirely on their own. But we reached the point with 25 kids, I said, well, who's ready to go? And a bunch of hands go up and I said, go ahead and get started. And I said, the rest of you, and I pointed to a table in the corner of the room, I'll talk with you over there. So sat down and I said, um, let's collect a little data here said, so what do you know about everybody who's sitting here at the table with me? Somebody said we're all boys. Yeah, I said um so there's what is see. how many boys are there here? There's 10 boys and somebody said they gave the names of the other two boys and said well those two they're they're doing science. I said yeah, so we've got 13 girls and two boys are doing science. I said is there something about doing science that boys, you know, have trouble doing? And they all kind of looked at me like, shoo, shoo yay, you know, I mean you're 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 meeting a new teacher and you're not quite <laughs> sure. Although half of these kids, this is a multi age classroom had me as their teacher the year before, so they were kinda of used to my style. Then I looked at, and I asked again, I said, Well, do you notice anything else about the boys who were here? Kinda of looked at each other and I said, do you know are we are any of you from the same background or anything? Um I said, um, hmm, are any of you Hmong? Now, for those uh, listeners who don't know about the Hmong, in Wisconsin we have the second or third largest um, population of Hmong who were refugees uh, coming from Southeast Asia following the Vietnam War. They had fought in the secret, sometimes called the CIA War, and um, were in refugee camps and came over. And uh, at the time that, that I'm telling this story about, uh, the Hmong kids that I had in my class, their families would not have been in the United States for very long. And um, so I said, uh, huh, are some, some, some of you know, well, wait, I said, there's five of you boys who are Hmong. Now, I told this story to my daughter that night. She was a third grader in my school, not in my class this year. And she said, Dad, you didn't. That's just awful. That is nasty. How could you do that? I bet you. You'd. I said, Remember, there's a huge Hmong story cloth in our classroom. And kids last year said most of those boys had been in my class last year, and they felt confident enough that they would talk Hmong, their own language, in class, and suggest we have Hmong words in our spelling test. So I, so I asked the boys, I said, uh, So is there something about Hmong boys that you can't do science. And then somebody said, well, you know, by and my, they're doing science. Yeah. I said, okay, so the the girls are, the Hmong girls are doing science. But he said, is there anything about being Hmong? And it got totally quiet, just as my daughter was, although she was angry. And um, they're kind of like looking at me. I mean, where am I going? And then I said, I asked them, I said, what is the Hmong word for science? And they kinda of looked at me, the Hmong boys, and kind of shook their heads and I said, Hmm. What is the Hmong word for experiment? I still, you know, didn't didn't have anything. And again, my, my daughter, as she hears this that evening, she is so angry and so agitated and she said, You're embarrassing them I said, Cassie, you're gonna to have to wait to hear the end of the story. Uh-huh. So I said, in my native language, a dialect of german um i don't know a word for science and i don't know a word for experiment and so my dad never went to high school he had never studied biology so when i'd been in high school and i was trying to you know learn how to do things i thought that my dad couldn't help me and i said look at all these other kids over here you know they go home some of their parents are science professors or they've studied science in college they know all about how to help these kids get their materials and i said maybe some of you and the kids are saying well i could get materials and i said just just wait i said for some reason there must be a problem with boys and including mung boys in doing science so i said i had a project i had to do with my high school biology teacher and I, the project i chose was to classify but to classify something i classified trees so i explained this to the boys and I said, I, w- I couldn't figure it out. It was winter time, and my keys were set up for flowers and uh, <laughs> buds and leaves, and I couldn't see any of that. It's time. And my dad notices my total frustration. He says, can I help you? And I'm kind of looking, Dad, how could you possibly help me? You don't know about science. And he said, well, what are you trying to do? And I said, I'm trying to get, I need to get pieces of trees. He said, well, I can go out with you. So we got... Um, a hatchet, small saw, gunny sack. We went out into the woods back behind our place.
0: Say what a gunny sack is. Not everybody knows.
2: Gunny sack is um, a, a bag with burlap that we would have used on the farm for, you know, like for oats or grain or things like that, flour. So it's a burlap bag. And so we went back there, and Dad. Soon we came to trade, and Dad said, "Well, you want that?" And I said, "What kind is that?" And he said, "That's white oak." Huh. For sure. So he got the white oak, and then he went, this one over here. And I said, well, sh- yeah. What is it? And he said, well, that's wild cherry. And Dad knew the names of, like, all those trees. Because when he was a boy on an Amish farm, the wood they used, he knew the kind of wood that you would use for the spokes of a wagon wagon, the wood you'd use to make an axe handle, the wood you use for making fire. And he knew all of these trees. And I was totally I turned to these Hmong boys again, and I said, you know, your parents have an astounding knowledge of nature. Now, you know, they haven't been here in the United States for very long, but just like my dad, and so then I told them a story about how I knew that because I'd done field work with with the Hmong and had some very specific examples. So I said, um, you know, your parents have that really profound knowledge of nature. Um, they farmed. They hunted. Um, But I said, the knowledge of knowing how to do science in an American school, that's something they haven't had a chance yet. Science, you may have to get somebody to help you. So I got all ten kids, you know, listening, nobody's saying a word. And uh, I said, "I says anybody who can help you? They all kind of like looked at me and finally Sue says, "Well, well, you, Mr. Wagler, you can help us. And I said, well, yeah, I could. I said, if any of you ask me to help you yet? And uh, they were kind of like astounded. Well, I broke up that conversation. They were able to start working on their projects, and immediately kids were asking me questions. And the next day that we did our experimental projects all around the classroom, kids in teams of one and two doing our independent science investigations, I can tell you every single one of those Hmong boys had a science project and was collecting data.
0: So this is really about, I mean, what I hear you talking about in a story is is the culture or the story of science in in culture and in people or peoples. Well,
2: <clears throat> I think, I mean, I, I, I wondered what story I was going to tell you. And uh, when I told my wife, the one I chose, and she said, oh, it's perfect. But it's not obvious as to you know where it goes one one thing about um that story is you notice that I told a story in the middle of my interaction with them. In fact, I told them a handful of different anecdotes. I hadn't planned it it wasn't part code of my repertoire it was simply it was the right thing for me to use to grab their attention to grab their motivation um and it's true i I have taken a lot of risks because of being bicultural myself that i trust myself in interacting with other with kids who are bicultural but the, the, but there's other parts to this i mean so what makes this an example of narrative pedagogy is that first of all these kids are doing independent projects and uh, we could go a little bit later and say that you know the whole thing that science itself is a story and the investigation that they were doing is part of a story structure so, and there is um, a kind of pattern um, that is there as I talked. Uh, the kids begin to pick up in the patterns of language, and so I use repetition and patterns and imagery and the dialogue. I, I didn't use much dialogue. Well, I used a bit of dialogue here. I think, I think a lot of people story. are
0: going to have a hard time with this idea that science is a story. So well, Let's let go it... into that in more detail.
2: Okay, let's just go there for a moment. Okay, so... When scientists are working on a, an investigation, they've got people in a place, like in a lab or in a you know, a natural environment or wherever, so you've got people in places, and they've got a problem, a question they want to answer. Classic things that you need to have a story. And there's a series of events that happen, and that series of events leads to a resolution or if it doesn't lead to resolution we reframe our problem and we continue to uh, we begin another story back in the early 90s i got a summer research fellowship with the american society for cell biology now i had never had a biology class in college but the professor um when she knew that i wanted to do this kind of work she was willing to to take me on in her lab because she said she liked it, my background, that I was a storyteller, and she said, you know, you'll understand about patterns, and that's what we look for here, and you'll understand about solving problems, I said, you really got it, Judy. I mean, that's exactly what I do, so I spent um, the entire summer often, you know, getting up before the sun was up, five in the morning, and sometimes till midnight, you know, looking through microscopes and setting things, trying to find still model patterning in a plant called Tradescantia. Now, that wasn't all that happened because I worked in a lab and we had regular lab meetings. And when we had lab meetings, you know, the professor, she'd ask, well, let's see, who's who wants to go first? So somebody would tell the story of their research. And that's what a lab meeting is. So I've been doing this, I've been doing that, but I'm having trouble with this. So it's not the whole story, but it's a part of the story and uh so somebody else i might tell and said you know i've i've um i'm am having you know real trouble with i've been doing all this slicing with um with the um with the with these leaves uh of this plant but um you know i'm i'm having real trouble like seeing the bigger pattern of it so if someone describes to me a method of how to do it and So now we leave the lab meeting, and uh, after the meeting is over, we're in the lab, and the person shows me the steps of doing something, a sequence, a story. Now that's not a profound story; it's not a folk tale, but it it absolutely is a story. And in fact, most of our talk is our oral language is arranged in narrative, and the talk that's narrative when you're a scientist and you you present at a conference. Um, when you write an article, I mean, just look at the form of a scientific article and the way it's the way it's set up. So you start with your, your question and where that question comes from. You describe the protocol, which are the steps of what you're going to do. You then describe the kind of evidence you've gotten as you've moved through those set of steps as you're resolving. Now, I'm not making all of this up. Um, at that time, back 15 years ago, I began talking to people scientists about this, and um, and I got some leads of people who had written about science as story. Now, is science a story? Maybe math a story? You know, maybe geology is a story? So so are the underpinnings...
0: Maybe, you know, maybe
2: the, the underpinnings, world
0: is a story. Are the underpinnings of these of the story in science, is the underpinning sort of a heroic journey? I mean, are many scientists driven by this idea of... of of bringing back the gems from the dragon, so to speak, you know.
2: Well, I mean, definitely one can find if one wants to look for um, those kinds of uh, stories in in contemporary experience. But I would suggest that you know the predominant form of storytelling in our culture are not in I'm saying in American mainstream culture are not folk tales, are not epics. You know, they're not lies they're not uh the predominant form of stories in our culture is people telling stories of their everyday lives so mm-hmm. i could tell you the story about the bean soup i made tonight and uh, my wife tells me the story about how you know what happened at the meeting today we do this every day um and so some people think of folklore as that it's long ago and it's folk tales and for me when i think of folklore my wife is a professional folklorist as am I also, um, but not as well-trained as she is. I think of the study of everyday life. And in the study of everyday life, people tell stories like about doing a science experiment, but they do that much more often than what they tell the story about Three Billy Goats Gruff.
0: This is Fran Stallings. You're listening to The Art of Storytelling for Children with Brother Wolf. Check out my interview on environmental storytelling. Telling hope to inspire action. Let's go on with narrative pedagogy. Let's talk about that. Um, define it again for us. What is narrative pedagogy? And well, I think some people may be turned off by the word pedagogy, yeah, so just yeah, maybe yeah. lay that out a little bit. Yeah.
2: Well, By pedagogy, I mean the science of teaching or the practice of teaching, the, you know, the reflections, the, you know, the awareness, the consciousness of how one goes about teaching. And by narrative, I'm actually just taking story and taking and turning it into an adjective, so that we have you know people in the religious profession talk about narrative theology and in what profession I'm in now in game design, people talk about narrative structures and in you know in literary criticism, people talk about narratology, and in fact, in so many fields, people talk about narrative. And how narrative structures landscape architecture, how it structures legal profession, and so this use of this idea that of thinking and as a way of being is is has has become one of the really major um, kind of aspects of the of, of the university in the last twenty years i 'm not talking about you know the science and engineering and that but i 'm talking about social studies, literature the arts that looking at um the way that narrative structures our lives. And so when I use these words in narrative pedagogy, I'm I'm trying to use some words that indicate to us that I'm not talking about me telling the story about my dad and me going out and cutting down wood. I'm really trying to say that the entire teaching experience and the learning experience can be structured in the shape of a story so that we're living a story. And when we live where we consciously create the world and see the world unfold as a story, some very different kinds of stories get told by the students and the teachers. Hmm. And so the way I can give you a set of words, and I, I did in the blog, a set of words that might describe and characterize narrative pedagogy, but without... Deeply experiencing it as a teacher, it's just going to be a set of words. I mean, for example, um, I think one of the greatest scholars of, of folk tale and, and of traditional narrative is a professor here at UW-Madison. He's in his 70s, and he's legendary here for the courses he teaches on African storytelling, uh, Professor Harold Choib. And when he talks about what the elements of storytelling are, he uses words that at first Kind of catch you off guard. He says, storytelling the three main ingredients are image, body, Mm
1: -hmm. and community. Yes.
2: Now, we, if you look at that, you soon see that image is kind of the core component of what we sometimes call the story or the plot. And body, we often talk about how we perform and our gestures and our voice and our, you know, and community is the sense of the audience. But if one looks at this from within a larger metaphor, then what does it mean to be a teacher who is deeply aware of her or his body and the bodies of the students? And what I mean by that is that one experiences the story in its kind of deep, absolute presence, that when I am present in a classroom with a group of kids, if a story gets told or not told, we're living a story that our bodies are we're present. And by bodies I also mean our emotions and our senses and our our whole being is present. Not just a set of words. We're not disembodied in a story. That's ghosts. And so the kind of stories that I'm talking about is not ghostly, it's It's embodied storytelling. And so to structure a curriculum where body and community and imagery and pattern and dialogue and problem-solving are present, um, I can give you, well, I could could teach this all year for four years to somebody who wanted to learn how to do this. Uh, This is so deeply what my life has been about. Can I do it in a half an hour? I'm not sure.
0: Well, let's get down to the bones here. Yeah. How do you use narrative pedagogy in a classroom? I mean, how do you actually do it? How do you go about Let's pretend that someone's listening to this show and they're in China. And they're never going to get to your door and they're they're going to have very little access for whatever reason. This is their only opportunity to listen to a computer and they're going to This is their only opportunity to have the bones of of the of the concept. So, what would you how would you tell them to go about setting up a classroom this way?
2: Well, one of the, so let me just describe a few things that are easy, and then we can get to some things that are more difficult. So first of all, I was an elementary school teacher, and as quickly as I could, I got a multi-age classroom. Hmm. So half of my kids at the end of the year were fifth graders, and they'd move on to middle school. And half of them were fourth graders, and they stayed. And the next fall, those half of them who'd been fourth graders came back and their parents came back. So if I said, when we came and we started school on the first day of school, guess what a whole bunch of those kids that had been there as fourth graders came back as fifth graders said, when can we do our I Wonder project, meaning our science project? So that they passed on a culture. So we had a deep community which continued over years and years. So there's practices I could tell you about Things that the kids said that would get repeated to the next group, and they were passed on continuously. So there was a kind of community. When I had parents who were parents when they came on as fourth graders, they'd look at my class. They couldn't figure out what I was talking about, what I was doing. And by the end of the year, when they really got it, and then I would ask for parent volunteers, those returning parents were my really extraordinary volunteers. So one year, you know, we'd gone on a family retreat uh, with. Kids and their families for a weekend, through this year, and I said, Oh, I would love to take the kids up to the Oneida Reservation. I'd love to go up to the Corn Festival. And they said, Well, we'll help you. Is it, but is that where you? If you had your choice of where you would take the kids, where would you go? I said, Well, I can't do China. But I said, Well, you mean you really are going to help me? Yeah, yeah. There was three of them. Well, they worked with me. One of them wrote the grant that funded us. One uh, is, a, is, a, is a writer and editor who put together the book that we put together and got out. Um, and so this group of parents, you know, provided the structure, the community, that made everything work. Now the kinds of things that we did, you're not going to believe what we accomplished because you're say it's impossible. But without that returning community, it, it wouldn't be possible.
0: Oh I no, port- I, b- I believe it's possible. I've seen, yeah. I've seen the effects of when you allow a culture to build on itself year after year, when you, allow, when you ha- set it up so that, so that you are not, as the adult, responsible for every single age group. I, I, I was program director of a camp called Free Spirit Nature Camp, and we have a staff there of CITs, and they run the camp. I'm, I, you know, the, sta- the older adults are supposed to be responsible, according to the state, for all the kids, but that's not what happens. We're responsible for the staff you know, the CITs, the junior counselors, and they are responsible for the children. Hmm. They watch out for those younger folks. And it's amazing to behold. I mean, you know, ultimately we hold that basket of safety, but there's this sense of multi-generational uh, culture from year yeah, to year.
2: Camp, you know. camp does that. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's camp does that, it, but it's amazing that school school doesn't. One year, my principal took it away from me. Hmm. I had been teaching algebra for years. I had kids doing incredible projects. You know sometimes fourth graders would be afraid they had a choice to either do algebra or be in the regular math group mm. and um but almost all of them, if they didn't choose it as fourth graders, they'd come back as fifth graders and do algebra mm-hmm. and when I lost the multi aging, mm. I eventually lost I'd stop teaching algebra because this kind of spirit, a kind of style, a way of working the the ability to do profound work and to really be focused and totally delighting in the beauty the patterns of our mind, the culture wasn't there anymore.
0: I, I can hear my listeners saying, okay, that's great, Mark. You told us all about things, but give us something specific. What can I take into okay, my I classroom?
2: Just, I've just said stru- multi-aging and building Multi- community. So let's take another one.
0: Let's take another one. What's something... Okay, okay so, so what real, is-
2: real, real specific. Um, one of the things that I do because I work for years telling stories and collecting stories, I'm very much aware of oral language and how oral language connects to developing language and power with language. So because I am able to help students in our conversations develop patterns, rhetorical patterns, vocabulary, concepts, the every time that language gets used, we are making progress in our use of reading and writing. Now, that means that i 'm able to build bigger projects because the oral language that i 'm using when i 'm teaching science and math and social studies we 're doing language, so sometimes people come in a room and they say, "Well, when do you teach reading because they try to figure out i mean reading is the queen of the of the curriculum, and instead we're off um doing our mornings in the marsh where we 're traipsing around by a lake and we're off on a field trip somewhere and we're kids doing independent projects, and someone says, where's your curriculum? Well, my curriculum is in you know, a very strong perception about oral language. With that, by, by seeing language being used everywhere, it meant that also we did a lot of reading and writing. And by doing a lot of reading and writing in our projects, it meant that I could do most of the things that I taught in a project way. So now i 've got kids much more deeply engaged, so they they're writing um, with a real sense of community, sense of audience that's a narrative idea. Hmm. So you know we talk about authentic audience that's a narrative concept. I mean so many of the things that I talk about, you know problem solving improvisation it's inquiry i mean these are many of these ideas are out in the world. I was just i've tried to pull them all together for me to have a way of teaching. I'll give you another example. So
0: one of the things I hear you saying, I want to hear your example, but uh-huh. um, one thing the things I hear you saying is, is I hear you creating passion in your students. You have uh-huh. experiences with them or you set up opportunities for them to be exposed to new ideas and you're creating a passion for it uh-huh. and a culture that it, that that can then support that passion and can carry on from year to year. So you're not just having to reignite every year the, the, in the same baseline. You can build you can Absolutely. carry it you know give give us the other example
2: well one one thing that in my classroom is that i suspect that my kids would write more than any other fourth or fifth graders in the united states um and it it had to do once again with with a set of things um i taught writing and used a lot of oral language things so from a workshop that i'd had back years ago with a a, a man at Columbia College in Chicago, John Schultz. I I learned a way of coaching, which is very different than the coaching that the way that I developed coaching in the early '80s in my residency. It was a much more direct. um, So, my kids are reading out loud from a story. I would do something that some people would say, "Oh my God, what is he doing?" I'd say, "Read louder, please." I didn't wait till the end and say, "Oh, that was really good. You know, next time you may want to read louder." I would immediately say. Louder, please. So a kid starts reading louder, and lo and behold, other kids stop goofing around, and they pay attention. And as they pay attention, they notice that this kid is a good writer. Well, if I had been too gentle with all of this and been afraid of using what I know about oral language and would have been afraid of simply saying, louder, please, or slow down, please, and I could, again, we could huge amounts of examples of this, but basically what happened is that kids began to have huge delight in listening to each other read what got written, so you'd want to write something and you want to write a whole lot. <clears throat> in the morning, we'd always begin writing in our journals, and here's how it would go. Almost every day, I would say, who wants more time to write? And almost all the hands would usually go up. And then I'd finally, I'd have to say, guys, and, and and if ever it came down to being like three-fourths of them, I'd say, okay, guys, two, about two more minutes. or some kids and now we're done. Um, and so kids wrote because they were in charge. They wanted to write. But the reason they wanted to write was because of this oral language component, this awareness of audience, the awareness of voice, the awareness of touching, reaching somebody, and being able to create within that context. Eric, this is all way too complex to do in an hour. But let's see if I can <laughs> give an image or two to get there.
0: <laughs>
2: I've spent what? my whole. I started teaching in 1963, so uh, I
0: seven years before from... I was born. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Let's be clear: who's the pup and who's the grandfather? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I find this really fascinating because many of these ideas, in some ways. I've had to turn my nose to the wind or into the wind and just run the direction that i the opposite direction I was being blown in yeah. because I was so harmed by bad yeah, teaching yeah, yeah. as a youngster so uh you know, I went through this period where um I basically just looked for ways that I could use story in teaching wherever I could, and I find it fascinating listening to you. Um, I found very few places in the United States, and maybe I just didn't have the right language when I was looking, but I found very few places that supported this idea of culture. And in fact, until I've had this conversation with you, I have never felt like, no one has ever said to me before, I built a culture in the classroom that continued from year to year, or I worked to create a culture from year to year. I've had people say, you know, oh, I've built a good classroom culture, but they didn't seem to be like, Try and do that multi-age thing. They were just trying to build up this expectation in their classroom. Or, um, I mean, maybe in Waldorf classrooms, it's part of their curriculum. They, you know, but it's one group, and they're going up, and they're it's year after year. It's not really passing it down from one hand to the next. Um, and I've talked about this last couple calls, but I'm going to say it again. I just went to the uh, Wilderness Awareness School at the Art of Mentoring, and one of the things they use there in their description of how they're creating this workshop, which is a multi-age workshop. There were people there from the ages of four to the age of 72. There's 100 people all through the age range. And it was the only time I've ever been in an environment like that where every single age was held by the community. And one of the images they used was the image of, of um, there were these 19-year-olds who were taking care of the teenagers out there, and they were watching over them as they were out in the woods, away from the community, because they're teenagers, <laughs> having their own good time out there. And um, one of the older teenagers was talking to one of the elders and he said, you know, I am reaching up with one hand to you and with my other hand I'm reaching down to the kids I'm watching.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this image of of this chain, in any in any community that's functional, there's this chain from the smallest child to the oldest adult and it's one hand reaching up and one hand reaching down. And that's what I hear you talking about in what you're saying. Is that here, You create this situation where... The older kids were, you know, quietly, but were there.
2: I, I wouldn't you know? say they were that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I
0: didn't really talk. I
2: tolerated a fair amount of creative sp- of, um, expression. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so they were there for the younger kids coming into the classroom. Their hands were out, mm-hmm. and their hands were up to you as well. for somebody who's teaching a regular classroom who's who's sort of trapped in that situation of a of a one age group um are there some ways that they can build culture from year to year there's no there's no there's no secret you discovered to help
2: well okay so if you don't have multi-aging you, you one loses a lot it's like if everybody in my street would move every year yeah. and everybody at work would get reshuffled every year so it's rough in school when you don't have continuity but nonetheless One could do some pretty profound things to build a community. I'll I'll just give you two, several real quick examples. As part of my um, work with my kids, I had them, most of their homework would be homework to study their home, their home environment, their neighbors. Um, They had what was called their place in nature, a backyard, a nearby space where there's something growing. They'd study that. They'd study their families. And so every day they'd come back and they'd tell about these things so that we began to know about each other as 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 having very real lives so if we take a walking field trip we're walking by somebody's home and we'd stop by and we'd see their backyard their place in nature or a family i would email the parents and say you know i'd love to do a field trip to somebody's home to just show to help kids understand what we mean when we're looking at family culture and, uh, you know, then, you know, get a volunteer and we go to somebody's home and we do it that way. Um, potlucks, you know, I mentioned family retreats, but it's a huge conscious effort to say that building this kind of thick community is a context in which we want to use profound language. And when mm-hmm. we begin to use, when we speak clearly and when other people listen very clearly, it's amazing how complex things we can do. My wife says that the quality of work, and I could show you articles that my students have written in a journal that we've created with other classrooms here in Madison that, um, you know, the quality of university students write. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is so powerful what kids can accomplish when our, when our language is, is deep and when our language is intense and, and, and when it's attentive and playful. So you know we we've mentioned community, but but you know, uh, and I mentioned improvisation a bit, but we could take other ideas about you know, let's like just take the idea of the word imagery, so it's not about community as a teacher, I was always trying I would just be there at the space of just listening to my kids I don't know much. I'd hear them talk, and you try to picture what's the image in their mind. See them struggling with the math problem, and I try to imagine what is it that they're seeing and not seeing. So when they write and they're writing in their journal, I coach them and say, you know, write what you see, what's there right now. And when they read, I worked with that. I would work with that every day in multiple ways. Kids weren't always aware of it, but I was. So in my mind, I wasn't teaching math and science and social studies. I'm doing that so I can talk with you. But in my mind, I was teaching kids to use images, working with those images with repetition, engaging each other in dialogue, experiencing community, solving problems. That was the curriculum. So the curriculum wasn't science or language or all of that. I knew that curriculum. I've been around a long time as a teacher but the real curriculum was these this thing that I'm calling this narrative pedagogy that's what we were actually doing
0: so I want to get Larry a chance to jump in here well okay here here's what I'm going to
1: say about this and and uh, this this is at the risk of uh, over oversimplifying a very complex thing again but um I you know, and 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 also this is not to in any way denigrate anybody who's teaching because as we talked about when when I did the show that I did with you uh most of the people who are teaching are just incredibly dedicated people but um Mark uh, uh started teaching in the classroom uh, when he was older and had a great deal of life experience. That was my, my deal, too. I was uh, almost 40 when I started working in the school I started working as a specialist and the way you become a teacher for most people is you get out of high school and you go to school and uh, you go to these classes and you learn how to teach and here's how you teach reading and here's how you teach science and here's how you teach uh, and and um, th- that's good information but it's kind of like uh, teaching from book learning and, and uh, you you know, I, part of what what uh, Mark is talking about here, and it really is hard. You, you know, you can't uh, just do this in an hour. It's like uh, when when you bring uh, experience in uh, to the classroom, and then you know create experiences for students and make that the core of uh, experiences where story comes from and when that's the core of uh, what and how you're learning then you're learning all is absorbed in the experience and absorbed in life you know I I went into uh, teaching as a specialist with the bias of uh, you know having read uh, Marshall McLuhan when I was in broadcast school in the 60's and they said don't read it and his deal was all education should be Based on experience and being out there um, and, and you know I, I was working primarily with trying to uh, create an experience where kids were learning how to tell stories and how to make media themselves rather than just uh, uh, sit and listen to it uh, you know but it 's the same thing as uh, uh, it 's education based on uh, experience and learning how to How to read and write uh, your way through it, and that's the way it is.
2: (laughs) What I would would say to you know what what Larry is saying is that having the experience of being a storyteller and coming back to teaching is um, it's kind of a a wonderful way to go. Um, It's a it's actually a very beautiful way to go is to. Be so confident is to have i mean i've got all kinds of stories, you know kids beg me tell this story, tell that story, and I'd say we're telling stories all day long, guys you know you've got to tell stories i 'm not just going to tell stories, but to have that as a part of the structure of one's mind as a way of thinking is is transformative in terms of how the class in terms of what that can mean if one can use real life experience, which Larry mentions, but also the experience of knowing. Of knowing story very very deeply, I'm re- I'm reminded of a story, and I was thinking, uh, Eric. Rather than telling you my other offer, I I just I thought I would just simply make my offer a final story. I notice we're getting near the end. I can't remember what Larry said because I wasn't planning on telling this story, but something that Larry just said prompted me uh, to tell this. Um, and, and 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 this is a, 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 in a kind of an it seems like a, somebody coming into my classroom and saying, um, well, th- this wouldn't be good for this wouldn't be good for all kids because this is not a structured classroom. And I'd say, oh wow, you know, in order to run a classroom like this, you need to have a, a huge amount of structures. I mean, just an elaborate kind of structure. I have enormous structures. I know the science standards. I know the math standards. I know writing is like what Larry said. I've worked as a professional writer. I've worked as a professional folklorist. I've worked professionally in community organizing. Um, I told you I worked you know, professionally in a lab doing science. I was a math major in college. I mean, I know these things. I know them very, very deeply. I have profound structures. You have to have that if you're going to be able to give kids room to work on projects you You need a lot of structure, so then here here's the story that I once told my kids and uh and then i've 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 told it since and I said well I said um in a, a cornfield you you plow the whole field and you and you, if you have a three bottom plow or a six bottom plow, you plow it all in even rows and you can go long distances, and it's all ploughed at once, you disk it all at once." if a kid were to raise her hand, I could explain disking, but see, I was raised on the farm. And then you plant it all at once. You plant it the same amount of corn, the same distance apart in the rows, the same distance apart in the rows. Everything is exactly the same. And uh, then you, you put on the same amount of pesticides. I said in the old days for my dad when we didn't use as much pesticides, you'd cultivate all of it on the same day and you'd do it in rows. Harvest it all at once. And on every stalk, you know, you want to have two ears of corn if you've got a good field of corn. So you harvest it all at once. And then, you know, you plow it back down and it's all the same. I said a lot of classrooms are like that. All the kids are lined up in rows. And you do everything the same. You give them, you try to tell them all the same bit of information. And you make them line up to do you know to to go to lunch and you line up to go anywhere and to get permission to do everything and you you put everything in rows and you want everything to happen at the same time and so the classroom and you call that sometimes people say that's structured it's real structured but it means it's a very simple structure i said now consider what those cornfields replaced in some places here in america prairies now, a prairie has many, many different plants. But not only those different plants whose roots are interacting, but many kinds of insects and birds and small mammals and reptile things that thrive in that space. But the problem about a prairie is that it's not easy once you've plowed it up to reestablish it. It's It's actually very hard to build a prairie. But once a prairie is there... It sustains itself. You don't have to keep, you know, plowing it and uh, disking it and planting and harvesting and putting on pesticides. It sustains itself. And so I told these kids, I said, "That's my dream for our classroom: is that I want to have time when we function like a prairie. It's not everything happens. We're not going to be a bunch of weeds going wild. We're going to be a deeply connected." interacting space of where we have time and so um we're going to today we're going to have prairie time now prairie time you always think of prairie as a place but i told that story probably 20 years ago and until the last <laughs> week that i taught at randall school a year and a half say mr wagler can we have prairie time and prairie time meant that if kids were choosing and making choices that fit within the the kind of learning goals that we had within our class and there was a whole range of things they could choose that they could choose what to do but they had to do it within that awareness that we're building a very complex and a very healthy environment and that was called prairie type
0: so offer your email well i um i don't have
2: any Books, or uh, I mean, if somebody wanted to, I could. I've got several book a book that I've co-authored, and another book I wrote, a small book that is available as a PDF. If anybody wants to email me, my email address is m.wagler, so m w a g l e r at w i s c dot edu. And um, I'm primarily interested in talking to somebody who's deeply interested in 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 their kids and themselves as living story and, uh, and 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 wanting to have not just one storyteller in the classroom, but everybody who walks in that room is being aware of everyone as being a storyteller. So I'd be happy to um, have an email correspondence with a person or two or a telephone conversation if we decided that's where we wanted to go.
0: And I'd like to offer again... Um, theme of the last couple of shows has been that I f- the community has value, and I want to offer again that coming up next in having a weekend gathering, maybe a three day looking at a three day gathering um of people who are interested in understanding how to build community and i'm um I went to this workshop in Vermont. Well, the Wilderness Vermont School, I talked about, and I'm interested in organizing a community along that model mm-hmm. for the children of Yellow Springs, for the children to, to come and to be a part of that community, but also uh, to help us to understand how we can function better as human beings in this culture and how we can uh, successfully pass through the coming downshift. And if you know anything about what's going on with Peak Oil, then you'll understand what I'm talking about. And if you don't, think about it, look it up online.
2: So you want people to uh, who are excited about community to get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, and I think people who are interested in the role storytelling can play in community Um, keep an eye on this website. And if you haven't noticed already, we have a vibrant, vibrant community of storytellers, online storytellers who are taking part in this website, storytellingwithchildren.com, and are taking part in these conversations. They don't always come to every call. Um, but they do listen, and they do sometimes write their comments in, and it's very exciting what's going on. So I invite you to come on and sign up, sign your email in, and get the weekly alerts of what's going on and going down. Mark, any last words for the storytelling movement?
2: Oh, I was just going to say that what got me excited to be on your show is um, just looking at all the great people you've got on the podcast. It is, uh, it is a wonderful enterprise to... Um, to be able to, to first of all is to be able to hear voices of people who I've heard long ago and people I've heard about and I didn't get to hear in person so um you, you're creating creating quite a treasury there and uh it it is a community already
0: well let me say this as we go out that I really appreciate and have a lot of gratitude towards all the people who have taken their time to come on the show and I have a lot of gratitude also for all of you out there in the on the internet world, on the planet Earth, who have taken a moment of your time, if, even if it's only even if it's only one hour of your time, to come and listen to these shows, I really appreciate it because it definitely is my passion and I find it extremely mm. exciting. And without listeners, it's kind mm-hmm. of pointless. <laughs> so even if you only take the time to listen to one show, and this is it, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, and with that, I'm going to say thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. Thank you. Harry. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for
2: listening.